that's fired up? Man, I mean, like, walk into music like that. Woo! Uh, you would not believe this, but I was not always a pastor. There was a time when I was not. Uh, when I was uh, 18 to 22 years old, between uh, college and right afterwards, I worked in construction, and I was not good at it at all. Uh, I was tolerated because I had a reasonably good work ethic and a good attitude, but nobody ever said to me, Craig, this is something you should definitely do for the rest of your life. Like, you are gifted at this. Not a single person ever said that. Uh, a few years after that, I went, uh, I went to Mexico as a youth pastor, and I went to Mexico with a group of teens, and we built a house for a family there, and I think I hammered in a grand, grand total of one nail. Actually, I think, I, I think it was three or four nails all performing the function that one nail would have done from a competent person. And the whole, the whole week, I just played soccer with the kids in the village. It was awesome. It was great. But uh, what all those experiences taught me was to have a deep appreciation and respect for those who really are gifted with construction and who do this really well. And you've heard this before, but one of the really important things with, with construction, and I, I learned this because I worked it with concrete for a couple of those summers, one of the really important things is, is the foundation, that you can build really impressive looking structures, but if they're not based on a solid foundation, it doesn't do a whole lot of good. Uh, in 1913, the Transcona Grain Elevator was built uh, close to Winnipeg, my, my homeland. There's a picture of it. Uh, they didn't have a whole lot of geotech surveying back in the day, and so the reports they had suggested that this was going to be okay. So they built this thing, they started filling it with grain, and within 24 hours, it was starting to uh, tilt quite a bit. Well, actually, within an hour, it was starting to tilt quite a bit. Within 24 hours, it looked like that. 24 hours. It turns out there had been a soft layer of clay underneath the surface. And so when pressure was placed on it, the whole thing just kind of collapsed. And as a result, my homeland shows up on every list of famous construction fails. I would know because that's what I Googled to find a story for this intro. Uh, and they had to pay a boatload of money to another company to shore up the foundations and build supporting structures. And it was this, it was this disaster. But actually, I think it's still standing to this day, obviously a little bit, a little bit renovated. And I'll contrast that with, with this building right here that we're, that we're sitting in. Uh, it's hard to believe, but construction on this building began almost three years ago already. And uh, the first year of it, for a guy like me, was really boring. Because you couldn't really see anything that was happening. From the street level view to the naked eye, there, there wasn't a whole lot because it was all foundation work. Uh, for almost a full year, it was carving out the land in, in the slope for this building to sit. It was putting those big retainer blocks that you can still see if you walk out those north doors. It was uh, drilling the most painstaking and loudest part of the process. And you can ask our neighbors for firsthand testimony about this if you want. Uh, was, was drilling these holes into the side of the slope as anchor points for for the building. So it was just like a year of building the foundation, couldn't really see what was happening, and then the building started to go up pretty quickly. And I, I thought about that in relationship to what we were talking about in the fall here at the bridge. We've, we've been going through the, the, the New Testament book of Acts. We're continuing on in that through the winter here. And, and in the fall, we looked at the first four chapters. And the first four chapters, and, and going on, uh, the gospel has not, it's, it's, it's a small a comparatively small group of Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And, and it hasn't really made much of an impact on the Roman Empire as a whole, and not at all outside of it. So it's, for the, from the street level view, naked eye, not a whole lot is happening. And yet, 2,000 years later, 
No matter what kind of religious background you have or what your convictions are, I think we could agree that the Christian movement is one of the most impactful, consequential movements in the history of humanity with billions of adherents spanning the globe, every culture, every language, cultures dramatically different from first century Judaism. So how did we get from there, where it was just this little thing in Jerusalem, to here? And the answer was that, that in, those, in those days, in the early church, God was building a really, really, really solid foundation. The kind of foundation that would be able to sustain a global movement. And that's the thing you need to, I think, remember as we come to the story we're in today. It's a story that has bewildered and confused people. It's a story that feels, I think, to some people out of place in the New Testament. They think New Testament, it's all about grace. It's all about love and mercy, and then you get a story like this, and you're like, what is, what's happening here? We're going to talk about that, but what I think what I, I want to give you right from the start is to remind you that God is a builder. God is into construction. He's, he's a builder, and he was passionate about building a solid foundation with integrity that would be able to withstand the kind of building that he was wanting to build ever since then. So uh, let's pray, and then we're going to get into Acts chapter 5. So Jesus, we, we thank you for your word. And we thank you so much for the blessing that it is to be here in this place, worshiping you, hearing your word together, whether we're here or, or online, Lord. We thank you for that blessing and, and gift as well, Lord, for those who are working hard to, to make that possible. Lord, we thank you that you're with us. There's so much going on in the world, and, and I know some of our people, Lord, in our church, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're sick, they're struggling in, in various ways. There's, there's brokenness in, in various ways, Lord. I pray that, that today, Lord, as, as we're worshiping and hearing you that, you, would, that you would bring healing, God, that you would come and, and, and let your spirit break into our hearts and, and make them soft, and that we would receive all that you have for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Acts chapter 5, we're going to start in verses 1 to 11. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yeah, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Can you imagine? Can you imagine somebody just dead because 
because they had lied, because they had committed a misdeed. I think we hear this, this story and there's, there's all kinds of questions that come up for us. And I wanna ask some of those questions today and see if we can get to the heart of the matter. And the first question is, what was, what was the sin that Ananias and Sapphira committed? What was such a big deal about what they did? And let's get one thing out of the way right from the start. The issue, the sin, wasn't that they withheld some of the money for themselves. Um, I, I'm sure you all remember perfectly uh, the, the sermons I preached in November. You all have perfect recall. I know that. But just in case you don't, I'll just give you a little review anyways. At the end of November, we preached on Acts 4 and how there was this incredible generosity in the early church that, that Christians were opening up their homes, they were sharing possessions, and some were even selling their properties and their homes and giving it all away to be distributed to the poor. And uh, Barnabas, a, a leader in the early church, he's an example of somebody who did that. And, uh, and what we said in November was that no single form of generosity, like selling everything you have and giving it away, was uniform and imposed on all the believers. Instead, these were, these were acts of freedom, freedom that were inspired by God's grace that God had given us so abundantly, so richly in Jesus that we're just, we're wanting to give give back. We're, we're wanting, to, we're wanting to, to be gracious as well. And, and some gave, gave some of their possessions, some opened up their homes, some gave it all. These weren't rules. You understand? So, so when we come to Ananias and Sapphira, they've got a piece of property and they sell it and they only give part of it away. And by itself, that's okay. Now, you know, Peter says, to Ananias here. He says, well, didn't, didn't it, the property, belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? The issue wasn't in the amount that they gave. The issue was that they lied. And, and, and then the lie, by the way, and, and, and it's interesting when you look at the story, and Ananias never actually confesses it. Did you, did you recognize that? Ananias doesn't even get a word in at least the way Luke tells it, Peter just goes, hey, I know what you did. Boom, he's dead. So if you're ever in a position where this story is getting dramatized, and I know you find yourself in that position on an almost daily basis, and you don't like memorizing lines, then Ananias is the part that you want to, you want to claim. Anyways, he doesn't say a word, but it comes out later on with Sapphira, where Peter asks, is this the price you got? Sapphira says, yeah, absolutely it is. And, and, and it's not. Verse 2 tells us they conspired to keep some of it back and to, and to deceive the, the church. Except that, according to Peter, the primary offending, offended party wasn't actually the church. And it wasn't the disciples. It was the Holy Spirit. It was God. He, he says to, to Sapphira, you didn't just, or does he say to to Ananias. He says, you didn't just lie to God, to human beings, but to God. He says this to Ananias. Now, in the Greek, as far as I can tell, the original language, it doesn't even have the word just. It's just, you did not lie to human beings. You lied to God. It's even more blunt than that, which is kind of surprising, right? Because they, they, they were lying to people. But it reminds me of a, of a passage from Psalm 51. Uh, the great king of Israel, King David, he had committed a little bit of an oopsie. Actually, a very big oopsie. He had seen Bathsheba bathing on a roof, which, by the way, don't bathe on roofs and don't watch people bathing on roofs. Both of those are things you shouldn't do. 
So David saw Bathsheba bathing on a roof and he lusted after her and he took her into his house and um, slept together. She conceived. Her husband Uriah was a soldier in David's army. David tried to convince him that the kid was actually his. That didn't work. And so he had Uriah killed in battle and then he married Bathsheba for himself. Just a horrid, depraved series of actions. And, and this from a man who we're told was a man after God's own heart, which I think should be a warning to all of us that no matter how conscientious we are, no matter how upright we are, that it, given the, the, the exact wrong circumstances, we are capable of sin. We're capable of evil. We're capable of doing things we never would have imagined we were. But, but we are human beings, fallen and desperately dependent on the grace of God. So, so, so David commits these sins. Uh, later on, Nathan, a prophet, comes in and confronts him about it. And David is stricken with grief. He's filled with remorse. And he writes out his lament in Psalm 51. And, and here are some of his words. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And, and by the way, can I, I just want to pause there and say, this is something that's going to come up throughout this morning. There's a difference between somebody who uh, sins with a hardened heart and doesn't really care what God thinks and doesn't, doesn't listen to rebuke and is just like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live this way full out. There's a difference between that and somebody who messes up, struggles with stuff, but is soft-hearted and repents, wants to do what is right, turns to the Lord and seeks forgiveness and restoration like David does. God deals differently with those two groups of people. So in any case, uh, David says these things, and then he says, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And every time I read that, I go, really, David? Like, I'm pretty sure you sinned against Bathsheba. Pretty sure you sinned against Uriah. You killed him and took his wife. I think he probably feels like you wronged him a little bit. Maybe just a bit. But see, David understood something. And I don't think David would have denied that he had wronged Bathsheba or Uriah. But David understood something about sin that a lot of people in our world and our culture don't. A lot of people in our, our culture, I think, believe that sin, if it exists is something that you say or do that directly negatively impacts another person. It, it hurts them. That's, that's when it's sin. And so if it's not something they know, they know about, if it's thoughts, if it's feelings, whatever, like that's not, that's not a problem. It's the stuff that you do that hurts another person. That, that's what sin is in the cultural view. But David understood that we are ultimately accountable to God. That, that God is the judge that he is the arbiter of what's right and wrong, that he is the creator of this world and has, has made this universe to have a, a moral fabric. He says later on in Psalm 51, a couple of verses later, he says, you're right when you judge, you're justified in your, in your verdict, that, that God is the judge. And like I said, he's, he's the creator. He has given us everything that we have. Isaiah says every breath that we have is from him. So we're accountable to him because everything that we have and are is ultimately a gift from him. And not only is he the one who's created us, made us, given us everything, he loves us. He genuinely loves us and has created us with a purpose. He wants us to, 
to live as his image bearers. Genesis 1 says he's created us in his image. We're supposed to look like him, represent him. Uh, we read in Ephesians, Ephesians 2 that we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. He, he has made us with a purpose. So on the, on, on the basis of all of these things that he is the judge, that he is the creator, that he's the one who loves us and has given us a purpose. Sin is not just the stuff that we do to other people to hurt them. Sin is any way in which we work against the love of God and the purposes of God to, to bear his image. Sin is, is all of that stuff. It's, it's the secret motives of our heart, even. That's why we read in, in Hebrews chapter 4, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Everything is open to him. Everything comes out in the end. So you look at Ananias and Sapphira and, and maybe they could have gotten away with it, right? Maybe they could have pulled off this little mini heist and, and nobody would have known that they had kept back some of it for themselves. Although, you know, if they started, you know, eating, eating, eating out at the falafel hut every single day, people would have been like, hey, you still have money left. I don't know. But they might have gotten away with it for a little, I didn't plan on saying that. That didn't go well. I, <laughs> they might have gotten away with it for a while, but ultimately God knows the secret motives of the heart. He knows what's going on inside. And we're accountable to him for that. God wants us to have pure hearts set apart for him. And so he saw what was going on in their hearts. And what was going on was that they cared more about appearing generous to other people than actually being generous. They cared more about getting renown and gaining reputation from others than they did about God's glory. In fact, their actions showed that they really didn't care much at all about what God thought. They didn't believe that they really were accountable to God. And it turns out that that doesn't go very well. Now, before we move on, can we just acknowledge that all of us are, like I said with David, all of us are vulnerable of the same kind of thing. All of us are, are vulnerable to doing and speaking things that are more about gaining applause from others, even if it's not consistent with our, with our hearts. One modern example and, and term for this is virtue signaling. It's when you post things and say things to kind of convince people that you're on the, on the right side, that you're, you know, you're one of the good ones, even if it's not anything true ab ab about your heart. And, and us preachers, we could be guilty of this too. We could spout off theological knowledge and look like we're spiritual and holy even while our interior lives are crumbling. All of us are, are prone to this, which raises a second and maybe even more terrifying question, which is if, if this is something that we're all vulnerable to doing, then why is it that this gets judged so severely? And, and, and what is that, that going to mean for us? Because it's a pretty severe judgment, isn't it? If you didn't catch it, it's an instantaneous divine death sentence. I mean, Ananias, standing there, Peter rebukes him, boom, he's down. And then three hours later, Sapphira comes in, confesses her sin, boom, she's dead as well. <laughs> Whoa, why did God respond this dramatically in this situation? 
And again, we, we, might, we might point to the way that these actions seem to have been done with a very hard heart and that God deals with that a bit differently than someone who wants to repent. There's that. There's also the fact that God really cares about the holiness of his church. He loves his church and what he wants to do with the church. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Let's be clear on what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about a church building. My kids and some others, they were, they were uh, taping things to one of the walls in the kids' room last week. And when I took the tape off, some of the paint peeled off a little bit. And... Um, so they've destroyed the church building a little bit in, in a measure. And I don't think God is going to destroy them. They got, a, they got a rebuke from their father, but I don't think they're going to be destroyed by God for that. You know what I mean. It's not a church building. It's a group of people. And it's not just any group of people either, by the way. Theologians make this distinction between uh, the, the visible church and the, um, the invisible or the hidden or the true church. The visible church is kind of like what we see right here. And I'm not sure where the live streamers fit into this because we can't really see them. But the visible church are those who gather together. And it's a, it's a mixed group, right? We've, we will have people who are curious about faith, asking questions. We're going to have people who are all in on Jesus. We're going to have people who say that they're Christians, but they're just kind of here because it's what they've always done and everything in between. And, uh, and, and that diversity, especially having people who are new to this, who are exploring, that's awesome. That's what we want. Um, but that's not who Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about the reality of those who have trusted in Jesus, who have gone all in on him. They're the brothers and sisters. His body is one of the, the, the terms in the Bible. That the, ch the church, what Paul's talking about, is the body of Christ. Jesus is living and active, and he makes himself known through the church, we are his, his body, his hands, his feet, his eyes, and, and so on. We make Jesus known. This is at the very center of God's purposes. To save the world is to make his salvation in Christ known through the church. As the church witnesses about Jesus in word and deed, the church is at the center of God's purposes for the world. And so when someone or something undermines that witness and corrupts it, that's, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And, and by the way, it's not just that God loves, God does love the world. That's why he wants the church to be pure and holy and to be a faithful witness. But it's also because God really loves the, the church. Like I said at the beginning, another analogy, another term, another image in the, in the Bible for the church is the bride of Christ. That, that we are the wife of Jesus. Jesus loves us. And if someone tries to undermine my wife and destroy her in some way, I'm going to have something to say about that. You're going to have to answer to me. Oh, 120 pounds. I'm a little bit heavier than that. Anyways, you're going to have to, you know, like I take, I'm, I'm going to, I want to protect my wife because I love her. And so Jesus loves the church, wants the church to live in, in, the, in the totality of his freedom, of his life, of his joy. And, and when that is deprived, Jesus wants to do something about that. However, we have to recognize that there are lots of instances of people 
undermining the credibility of the church where God doesn't, doesn't respond in this way. One of my favorite or least favorite videos of the pandemic, depending on how you think about it, was, uh, was Kenneth Copeland, megachurch or televangelist, whatever, blowing COVID away. Uh, he, I've shown this video before. I'll just, I'm just going to recite it for you because I've watched it so many times. He goes, COVID-19, I blow you with the wind of God. You're gone forever and you'll never come back. That was in April of 2020. Didn't work. Didn't work. I mean, false prophecy, right? Straight up, just false prophecy in like the creepiest and weirdest way possible. Still alive and kicking. Still putting videos <laughs> up there. Look at Jimmy Swagger. Uh, he, was, he was famous in the 80s and 90s, another televangelist, caught with prostitutes numerous times. He's still alive and kicking. God didn't take him out, and he didn't take me or you out any of the times that we and our actions or words undermine the credibility of the church. So that in itself doesn't explain it. Why, what is different about this? What's different about Ananias and Sapphira? And, and I think what it comes down to, and I don't know for sure, right? Because the text doesn't say for sure, but this is what I, given the, the whole of, of the scriptures, this is what I think. I think it has to do with when this takes place. I think it has to do with the context. I think it has to do with what we talked about at the beginning in terms of building a solid foundation. See, the Bible is full, and our lives are full of examples of God's mercy, his patience, his, his, his putting up with us over and over and over again in the scriptures, hundreds and hundreds of years where you're like, God, you should do something. And he's, he's giving Israel one after the next, after the next chance to repent. That's most of the scriptures. But there are occasions where sin is dealt with basically immediately. And, and a lot of those examples come from uh, the time of Israel's journey in the wilderness and then as they enter the promised land. Here's one, one example, one, one parallel. After the Israelites had been in the wilderness for over 40 years, they, they're, they're heading to the promised land, they cross the Jordan River, and they come to Jericho. And God miraculously delivers Jericho into their hands. Walls come crumbling down, French peas throwing slurpees at the Israelites, all that good stuff. That's from Veggie Tales. So Jericho comes down, and, um, and God had told the Israelites, you are not to take any plunder or spoil for yourselves. You are to devote the whole city and everything in it to the Lord in destruction. Now I know there are things about these stories, some of these stories that make us go, whoa, I, I don't understand what's happening. I got so many questions. I actually preached on this story back in the summer. It's on YouTube, a little cross-sermon promotion. <laughs> try to address some of those questions that people have. And, and I can point you to some other scholars who have done some work on that too. It's, it's, it's difficult, but there are ways of understanding those things. In any case, Israelites conquer Jericho. They go to the next place called Ai, and they get routed. They get destroyed. And Joshua, the leader of the Israelites, realizes it's because somebody has disobeyed God's commands. And it turns out that a man named Achan had taken some of the plunder from Jericho and had hidden it in his tent. So you catch that. He deceptively kept back some material goods. You hear echoes here of, of Ananias many years later. And this comes out in the open like it basically always does. And Achan and his whole family are, are right there uh, stoned to death. Um, done with. And the Israelites go on to destroy AI the next time they win the battle and they, they keep on rolling. 
Now, again, I know we have all kinds of questions. I don't have time here to address them, but here's the point that I want to bring out. Um, the, the, this, the parallel situation, the people of God throughout the scriptures, including Israel in the Old Testament, are saved, are, are called, are redeemed in order to be a blessing to the world. Israel was called to be a blessing to the world. That was the calling on Abraham and his descendants. And they were to be a blessing to the world by showing the world what is God like. What is he like? What does he want? How does he want us to live? So Israel was supposed to be set apart. They're supposed to be holy. They're supposed to live a different kind of life that represents to the nations, this is who God is. And you've got this really pivotal uh, phase in their existence where they are entering the promised land. This place where God is, is settling them, where they are going to be this light to the nations. And so it's so crucial here as you're starting out, as you're building these foundations that are going to have to sustain a lot of, a, a lot of work in the future that those, that those foundations are solid. And, and for Achan to sin in this way and for that to go unchecked would have been a little bit like taking a bunch of ocean sand and mixing it in with your fresh concrete foundation. I, I checked with a, a construction person in our church. I was like, what can destroy concrete? He's like, I have no idea. He Googled it. He found out ocean sand isn't great. So that's why we went with that analogy. So it's like taking a bunch of ocean sand and throwing it in. It just makes the foundation Brittle. It, it makes it so that it won't be able to withstand the pressure later on. And so here in Acts, you've got God establishing his church, building the foundation. And if you get off on a wrong foot, if you've got this corruption and these mixed motives and this heart that isn't right, right from the start, and that becomes an acceptable, tolerable kind of thing, then the foundations become brittle right away. You know, we talked about the importance of foundations at the, at the beginning from a construction perspective. Let's talk about it from a biblical perspective. We mentioned this last week a little bit with that proverb about children that if you set them off on the right track from the beginning, they generally don't depart from it. That, that building the foundation is so important in your life. And what is that foundation? The Bible says numerous times that God is the rock. He's the rock. And, and Jesus says his teachings are the rock. He has that little saying about how if anyone hears his words, this is what Jesus says, if anyone hears his words and puts them into practice, that person is like someone who builds his house on the rock and when the waves come, when the winds come, the, the house stays steady. But someone who, does, who hears his words and doesn't put them into practice is like someone who builds his house on sand. And when the, the storms come, the house gets washed away. That, that God and his word, that's the rock on which you've got to build your life. That's what sustains a life. See, a lot of people build on faulty foundations. They built on the foundation of conforming to the patterns of the world. They build on vague notions of happiness. They build on the foundation of pursuing wealth and security and popularity and status. And it's a brittle foundation that gives way and the house collapses over and over and over again. God is the rock. The foundation of our lives is to be built on him, nothing else. And it's the same thing with churches. Uh, the Bible often talks about Jesus as the cornerstone. 
the kind of the chief, the first foundation stone that you lay. And all the other foundation stones have to be laid in relation, in right orientation to that cornerstone. That's how the whole building comes up as it should. So Paul says in Ephesians, in him, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. We're that temple, right? And it starts when Jesus is the cornerstone. See, a lot of churches, more and more, I would say in in, in the Western world, they build on faulty foundations. They're building on the faulty foundation of some political cause or some social justice issue, or the idea of community service. And some of those things are fine, they're good, but they're not a reliable foundation. The foundation for our lives and the foundation for the church is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, the rock of ages, amen? So it's so, so crucial from the start that the foundation is laid well. And uh, that's what I think God is doing. I don't know for sure, but I think that's why this act gets judged severely. Listen, God has grace. He has mercy so, so much. And we mess up and we stumble. He forgives. But it seems that once in a while, in order to make sure that his redemptive mission gets on on the right foot, that an act like this is judged in this way because God is passionate about his mission to the world. Now, there's one other question that I, I want to ask. And it gets into just the next few verses. This, we won't spend as much time on this. But the question is, if, if, this, if this report starts to get around that people are dropping dead because their hearts weren't quite right, what does that do to the church? Doesn't that scare people away? That's usually what we think of when we think about discipline, right? We're, we're kind of afraid to do it because it'll scare people away. It'll alienate them. It'll break relationship with them. Some of us parents, we kind of don't want to discipline our kids because they might not like us anymore. And the truth is that here, this, this act of judgment does result in people being afraid, right? We read that a few times. People are like, oh boy, this just got real, So does it destroy the church for something like this to happen? Let's read verses 12 to 16. Here's how Luke, what Luke says happened. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. The guy was just dripping the healing anointing. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. We could spend a bit of time on that whole healing ministry and what an impact that has on the church. But in the context of today, I want to look at those middle two verses. They seem contradictory at first, don't they? Luke says, no one dared to join them. And then verse 14, he says, nevertheless, more and more believed and were added to their number. How do these things go together? There are a bunch of ways of understanding this. Here's one possible way. In every movement you inevitably have people who are basically groupies. They are, they are drawn to something new. They're drawn to something exciting. There's not a deep commitment, but they want to be part of it because, because it's something, you know, appealing. And so they kind of attach themselves 
on, on the fringes. And this happened to Jesus a lot. Everywhere he went, there were big crowds of people who would gather together and listen to him teach. There were people who believed in him because of the signs they saw him doing. But in John 2, we read that Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He knew them. He knew their hearts. He knew that it was superficial and that a lot of these people weren't really in it because of him, but because of being part of something exciting. And the cost of, of following him was the thing that ultimately kind of set them free from that, broke, broke that down. That's usually what happens. Groupies kind of decide to leave when things get tough and when the cost becomes clear. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He's riding a donkey. And you've got crowds of people praising him, celebrating, laying coats on the ground before him. One week later, where are they? One week later, they're either in hiding or they're the same people who are chanting for his crucifixion as now he takes the cross up the hill. They've just switched to whatever side has the momentum. They're like those casual sports fans who walk into a room with a game on and go, oh, the red team's winning? I'm gonna cheer for them. Plus their jerseys just have such a nice color. By the way, Siki, respect for your Clay Thompson jersey today. <laughs> it's like the worst, it's the worst kind of sports fan, right? It's the worst. It's just like they're just gonna cheer for whoever has the momentum. So the fans, the groupies, they just kind of go over here. And, and what happens with the Ananias and Sapphira thing, I think, is, is similar. Where Ananias and Sapphira, their, their death kind of tells people, oh, this is not something that you trifle with. You can't be part of this and just be lukewarm. You can't be half in. It doesn't work that way. It's too dangerous to do it that way. And so a lot of those groupies, a lot of those fans go, no, I can't be part of this. And they depart. And by the way, this is, a, this is an important lesson for the church in the West. There are a number of faulty foundations, like I said, that the church has been built on. And uh, liberal theology is one that especially gets my goat. I think that's a saying. Is it a saying? We're going to say it's a saying. Uh, that's one. But, but, here, but one other one in, in the evangelical world is what has been called the, the seeker-driven, seeker-sensitive movement, uh, which at its worst, I think, has been a way of saying we're, we're going to... Uh, we're going to build impressive buildings and we're going, to, uh, we're going to water things down. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to talk about difficult things like sin and holiness and, and judgment. And we're just going to be like nice, safe, comfortable, probably pretty cool. You have to be pretty cool, but you, gotta, you just want to be safe, comfortable, cool people that other safe, comfortable, happy, cool people can come. And maybe they'll, they'll want to be a part of something like this. And what you, what you end up with is, is pretty shallow, superficial churches. They're pretty weak churches that are filled with consumers who just kind of bounce to wherever is the coolest preaching and, and the best music. I would have to say that's not, that's not the early church. Would you agree? It's not what we see in the early church. And, and, a story, and, and an event like Ananias and Sapphira kind of puts the lie to that. Like you don't really see that and go, yeah, no, this is totally cool. We can just be, we can be half in. It doesn't work that way. But verse 14 is very different, I think. I think verse 14 are the people who really do trust in Jesus. They see what's happening. And they, they see the cost of it. And in the, in the second part of, of Acts chapter 5, we read about persecution. Uh, the persecution that the church is going to face. These are people who see the cost, but they are in. Because they recognize the faulty foundations of their lives and of the world. And they see that there's something very real about Jesus. We just were reading the Chronicles of Narnia with our kids, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, or Aslan, the Jesus figure. He's not, he's wild, he's not safe, but he's good. You know, 
Jesus in this passage, maybe not safe, but he's good. And so these are people who give their lives to him. See, Jesus says, I'll end with this. Jesus says in Revelation to a church there, he says, you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. And so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. He says in the gospels, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. This doesn't mean that you're perfect. Doesn't mean that you've got it all together. Doesn't mean that there aren't things that you struggle with. Doesn't mean that there aren't things you need forgiveness for over and over again. Doesn't mean that, that you've, got, you, you, you've kind of arrived. What it means though is that this is the orientation of your life and the greatest desire of your heart to follow him, to honor him, to know him. It's to build your foundation on him alone. Not trying to build your life on a whole bunch of different foundations. Jesus maybe being one of them. Or Jesus being one of the stones you kind of put into your house after you've built the foundation. No, he is the whole deal. He is the foundation of your life. He's the one you go to again and again. He's the one you orient your whole life around. Because guess what? When you do that... When you build on a foundation like that, when a church builds on a foundation like that, God does some pretty incredible things, don't you think? Let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, we read this story and we're just struck, Lord, with, the, um, with, how, <laughs> with how following you and, and the call to discipleship is not some superficial thing. And it's not something to be taken lightly and it's not something that we can do lukewarm or half-hearted, Lord. It's, it's, it's all in. And we see your grace, God. We see your, we see your mercy. We see your patience with us. And, and I think even a lot of us, Lord, we recognize that our foundations have been mixed. And yet you've kept us around. And, and you've even called us again this morning to repent of that and, and to make the entirety of our foundation you, built on you. And I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that our sins have been forgiven, that when we come to you in a soft heart and we recognize, Lord, that we have gone astray and, and we've been compromised and, and our hearts have not been right, that you forgive us and you restore us and you reconcile us to yourself. I thank you for that, Lord. But I pray, Lord, that we would not take that for granted, that we would not take that lightly, but that you would lead us, Lord, in a life of consecration, of commitment to you, that you would be our cornerstone, that you would be our foundation, Lord, that we would not compromise on this, that in this world, Lord, where there are so many foundations being laid that are brittle, that are temporary, that will pass away, Lord, that we would be built on the rock, Jesus, that we would be built on you because we know, Lord, that our house will withstand any pressure, any storm if our, if our house, if our church, if our homes are built on you. Jesus, be everything to us, we pray in your name. Amen.